Hi, this is Nick from Bike Talk. I'm with Jason Henderson. He's a professor of geography at San Francisco State University and with Adonia Lugo, who is the Equity Initiative Manager at the League of American Cyclists. Hi, guys. Good morning. Jason, Adonia, hi. So, uh, we now, the topic is uh, cycling is a human right, and um, I guess maybe we could start by just framing it uh, in terms of what we think that means. Um, should should I go ahead? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I, you know, it's, it's a big question um, because it, it 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 touches on broader issues of just uh, you know how is movement a human right or how is you know crossing borders a human right or um, you know the the freedom of passage that, which are you know sort of philosophical questions that some scholars have uh, been touching on. Um, and then also it, it touches on this, this notion of the right to the city, uh, which where I live now in San Francisco is a huge uh, political issue because we have the non-property class, uh, the renters, and, and, and so on, um, facing massive displacement from a city that you know, many value, many feel part of. And so it, it sort of spins off of that. Uh, but when I think about this question is, you know, is bicycling a human right? I think about the space of the street and how uh, localities or national governments uh, define who has the right to be in the street <clears throat> and at what speed and in what form. And you know, that, that, that's a big challenge for bicycling because uh, you know. Uh, for bicycling to, to really be both appealing and practical to a larger population, uh, we need to think about things like being able to ride safely side by side uh, or even three abreast. And uh, families with children should be able to uh, have uh, greater access to safe and free of the violent oppression that comes from uh, the automobile system uh, in the streets, and so that that you know poses a lot of uh, questions about what are the legal vehicle codes uh, in a lot of communities. It's you know ride as far to the right as possible, but then you have the conundrum of the door zone or debris in the curb, uh, and again you can't uh, ride sociably. So. I guess when I'm asked that question, that's kind of where I go, is, is these sort of two different themes, if you will, the, the right to the city and the right to the street. I don't know if that's where you guys were thinking about it. but no, I, think, I think that makes um, a lot of sense. The, the interesting thing is that um, the, the issue around how do you define a given space so how you know who has the right to decide um, how a, how a given space is going to be used? It's a really tricky and complicated um, problem where what you have, uh, and as we know, as you know, people who ride bikes and talk about bikes all the time, there are very different kinds of uh, spaces being created in a shared street by the person on a bicycle, the person in a car, the person walking, and so you have all these mobile places that. Uh, kind of coincide or or uh, conflict with each other from time to time, and so 
you know, and then we have this whole legal apparatus and um, infrastructure that's supposed to be telling us the right way to interact. But uh, the reality is quite often people have habitual uh, mobility styles that have nothing to do with, you know, speed limits or uh, <laughs> not running red lights, things like that. So street spaces um, are actually very difficult places to order. And so um, I think that that's a, that to me is, is definitely a very fascinating uh, topic. But I guess so then trying to tie that into a, a kind of rights issue is, um, is, is challenging because you have so many different overlapping kinds of uh, rights going on in a street space, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I, in response to that, you know, I, I think that uh, the automobile system has imposed a rigid order, and we have these vehicular codes and these metrics and these engineering standards for how streets are designed and configured. And what has happened in the last 30 or 40 years is as bicycling has risen, uh, and popularity for a variety of reasons, but uh, a lot of it has to do with urban livability and physical activity and all these things. The bicycle is challenging that order because it moves slower, because it is really a different kind of vehicle. But the uh, you know police uh, organizations and planning organizations want the bicycle to behave more like a vehicle, even when they're given separate you know facilities. They're still sort of beholden to these ideas of, you know, for example, the, the classic one that we deal with out here in San Francisco is the stop sign. Um, the stop sign is very different for a cyclist than for a driver. The driver just, uh, you know, uses some muscles in the foot to accelerate and brake, whereas a cyclist could probably, in, in most cases, safely roll through slowly a stop sign. Um, and... That issue right there is a huge flashpoint because the uh, folks who are resenting the intrusion of bicycles into the street space are bitterly denouncing cyclists who roll through stop signs and calling for you know all kinds of enforcement measures and disciplining. And we have out here, um, uh, particularly on some of our higher traffic bike routes, a lot of police activity against cycling to discipline the cyclists to force them to behave like a car when and you know if we really kind of sit back and reflect on it maybe we should be putting in you know yield signs slow roll stop or what they call the the Idaho stop rule or something like that much in the same way that when cars were first uh proliferating engineers would set the speed limit based not on what they thought was safe, but what 85% of vehicles were doing. Um, so there's, there's a lot of double standards and, and sort of um, you know, just making sure that the car system operates at its optimum, where these other modes, including pedestrians as well, uh, are secondary. So that, that also, I think, you know, to get to these human issues, and, and, and rights to the street, we, we got to look at the, the engineering code and the vehicle code and all kinds of myriad social structures, laws, 
uh, that that make all this seem legitimate and seem just the way it is, sort of naturalizing uh, the the car space. So I don't know if that's what you're looking for either, but um, that's what comes to mind. No, and I think um, I think that's that's a very uh, ever present tension. I think in bike advocacy is that the reality of the street as we know it as users on bikes is that it's very flexible, you know, like you can do things on a bike that aren't uh, possible or safe in a car. And at the same time, in order to legitimize our form of mobility within this very car centric engineering um, dominated paradigm of street design, um, we're seeing, you know, people developing and in, in, in a kind of race to develop the best uh, design standards and, and getting step into the MUTCD and it's very I can see how it's very important to to legitimize bikes but at the same time I wonder how much we're reproducing that same kind of car paradigm which really doesn't make mm-hmm. sense because bikes we we are are much more flexible in how we can you know choose our routes and and hopping up on the sidewalk from time to time you know we have we have these abilities as bike users that make it a really fun way to get around. And so sometimes I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how much we, we uh, are sacrificing in kind of kowtowing to that need for order that comes from that car paradigm. Yeah, and, and, and your, your point is uh, well taken with the fact that when you're on a road with a bike lane, you may not always want to be in that bike lane. For example, maybe the bike lane is all the way to the right, but you want to make a left mid-block, or maybe the bike lane doesn't feel safe because it has debris or the door zone of cars. And you're technically, at least in California, you don't have to be in the bike lane. However, 99% of motorists think, oh, you have a bike lane, you need to be in that bike lane. You can't be in the rest of the street. Um, so yeah, that that sort of engineering and delineation can be problematic. And I mean, one of the ways I look at this is if if, if a city like San Francisco gets to that 20% mode split that it says is its ambition and goal, in a way, bike lanes are going to be kind of irrelevant because right. they're not going to be able to handle all those bikes. So we're just going to be oozing and pouring out all over the streets. So maybe that's you know, maybe you hit a critical mass where, you know, it just flips. Uh, and uh, to me, that would be a beautiful day. But the challenge is how do we get to that 20%? Because we've got to get people thinking and feeling safe and comfortable in the space. So we've got to get that. It's, that. it's that between the 5% and 20% where we are right now. Well, and I think, I think that's... Um that's like the the ostensible goal of bike infrastructure is facilitating that shift, right? So creating spaces where people don't have to feel embattled and they can ride bicycles. But it is it is interesting to me that when I've talked to um, to bike planners and and people who um, do infrastructure work, they they don't always have that in mind. That that really, if if we were planning to change that mode share the infrastructure is going to become irrelevant at a certain point, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so it's like, yeah, if 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 we buy into this car engineering paradigm and have to have, you know, all of our bike spaces um, designed according to these um, standards, 
but what we're envisioning is actually a, a time when there will be so many people using bikes that they're not going to fit in these cycle tracks or bike lanes or whatever. Um, it's, it, it, I, think, I think thinking about it that way lets you see the infrastructure in um, a different light. And then that also lends, um, lends itself to the fact that, you know, in the meantime, while, while we want infrastructure to do this, you know, making bicycling more attractive and feel safer thing, there's also the issue of infrastructure taking on other kinds of meanings, which then ties into that gentrification issue. So mm -hmm. if something like a bike lane or a cycle track is seen as a as a symbol of, you know, urban sophistication or, you know, some kind of forward thinking, sustainability oriented uh lifestyle space. Um, what we're seeing across the US right now is different mayors of big cities noticing that effect and pushing for bike stuff, maybe because they want to get more people on bikes, but also in the more immediate sense so that their cities appear to be desirable spaces. Um, you know, if you think about there being this, this creative class population that gets to pick and choose what cities to settle down in. Um, if your city is the one with the best bike amenities, then that gives you a little edge in, this, uh, in that competition to get economically mobile people. So, so infrastructure, you know, what is it doing? Well, we want it to be making bicycling more populist, right? Like that's the ostensible goal is we want everyone to be able to get on bikes. And by creating these zones where you don't have to be aggressive, you can just ride your bike. That's, that's the ideal. Um, but there's just this reality that when we're making changes to shared urban spaces, property values change and you know, displacement effects um, mm -hmm. can happen as a result as well. Um, so, is a is there some? What's the thinking on what comes first, infrastructure or the people to use the infrastructure? I mean, because if you just build the the bike lanes, you can't assume that people will then fill them. Right. I mean, should should you develop like a, a groundswell of support before you do the infrastructure? I mean, well, that that's that's going to vary city by city. But I have an interesting anecdote to that question, which is that out here in San Francisco, we the city started to build bike lanes uh, a little more quickly in the early 2000s, but then there was a uh, the Trollic lawsuit against taking away car space and putting in bike lanes. And uh, that, it was a very complicated uh, lawsuit, but it effectively stopped the city. The city was enjoined uh, by the courts to not build bicycle infrastructure for four years, almost five years. And a couple of things got through, like some uh, safety signals and some signage. but. Literally, for about four, four and a half years, the city did not stripe in a single bike lane. And yet, through that decade, from 2005-ish, 6-ish to 2010, bicycling boomed. So it, it, it raised a few eyebrows, like, well, basically, what we're seeing is the desire of younger, some of it is that creative class that Donia was referring to, um, some of it is the desire for physical fitness. Unfortunately, some of it is also because the public transportation system, which does have very good service, but is mired in traffic, 
in many parts of San Francisco, it's faster to ride a bicycle than to take the surface transit. And also the limits on parking in downtown San Francisco and in the inner neighborhoods, all of that converged and led to uh, a bicycle boom in the city despite nothing getting laid down for almost five years. So that, I don't know if that turns the building and they'll come on its head. What it really has done is it's shown that now they need to really do, instead of just dinky little bike lanes next to parked cars, which is what they were doing before, uh, they're more uh, at least considering cycle tracks, considering um, pilot projects that, that can be done at certain intersections and, and, and ways to really accommodate more and more cyclists, particularly on some of the main streets. Unfortunately as well, it has now become entangled with the tech boom, which if you've been looking at the, the papers and, and blogosphere recently, most of the, the, the anger is now being directed at what are called Google bus. But mix is also this, the bicycling um, uh, issue. Le less so, I'm, I'm getting a sense that it's less so here in San Francisco aimed at, at bicycling, but I know that it's come up in Portland and I believe in Washington. It's come up a lot in Oakland um, where the discussion of bicycling gets uh, tangled in with this gentrification thing. When I would say, uh, going back to the yeah, the question of you know, um, if you build it, they will come. Are there alternatives to that? What I've tried to argue through um, some different writing projects uh, has been that you know, we <laughs> we are a weird uh, social movement, bicycling, um, because <laughs> we often overlook the social movement that we're part of, and we end up especially in recent years with the shift from vehicular cycling as the dominant um, kind of ideology in the movement to this more facilities-oriented approach, we often overlook our own role as human infrastructure in creating social spaces around bicycling and in creating um, excitement and energy around bicycling. And so I actually wrote a, um, a chapter for the the book that came out last fall that was celebrating the 20th anniversary of critical mass, um, and um, the chapter was about how critical mass in Los Angeles, which started up in um, 1990, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm forgetting this, 97 or 98, led to um, the growth of a bike movement there. And so that eventually has had effects on the built mm -hmm. environment, but, you know, we we do a lot of our work at bike collectives, uh, on group rides, you know, spending time together as bike users and telling each other how to get around and dealing with the, with the, um, you know, with an infrastructure network that's incomplete or hostile. Um, so, so there, it's funnily enough, this is just something that's been so overlooked that um, we don't really know how to measure its impact. Or, uh, or really, how to how to build more of it. Um, so I think I think that's why there's a growing number of bike researchers, um, like myself and like Jason, who are looking more to interviewing and ethnographic um, participant observation to understand a little more what's going on with bicycling and um, trying to kind of flesh out more these models um, that focus on road design. 
as as the main uh, driver of change. Yeah, and I, I, I yeah. well, I think Adoni is right about uh, the at least critical mass in its in its early years in wherever it uh, you know gets started. Certainly in, in San Francisco, critical mass was very, very important through the 90s and early 2000s. And then there was this, what they call out here, Sunday Streets, which is like a Ciclavia um, down in Los Angeles or in Latin America. And that, anecdotally, I don't know that anyone has, has like interviewed participants in Ciclavias or whatever, but anecdotally I know that um, people with children who take their children to these events are saying that their children uh, on Monday morning are like, how come we can't ride our bike to school? Hmm. We rode all through the street, and it was safe and fun. And also people who are afraid to bicycle in the city will go to an event like Sunday Streets. Where, and Sunday Streets, for the, for the listeners, it's, it's where they close the, the street to cars and open it. We call it open streets, I think, um, to pedestrians and cyclists. And it depends on the route configuration, how it works. You know, sometimes it doesn't really work for bikes, but but the, the the larger, longer routes work well for bikes. And people will bike in San Francisco and see that it only took them five minutes to go from you know a mile or or or. And so and and it creates this sort of spatial recognition that it isn't really that the distance, or even in some cases the hills, because there are ways to go around hills or to have gentler grades. And people just kind of see by these events. These events are, are important because they, they, and they also, the Sunday streets are also because they're legitimate in that there's, you know, parking and traffic officers who are allowing it to happen. Um, people feel like, oh, they're not being scoff laws. And, and so they, they come out and, um, you know, I think on Monday morning they're, they're looking at the city differently. I think we just got a new caller, right? Is this Elizabeth? That's right, yes. Um, Are you able to hear me okay? Yeah, you're great. Fantastic. Uh, can, can you introduce yourself and, and your organization for us? Yes, thank you. Um, my name is Elizabeth Barner, and I work for the CTC, which is a national cycling charity in the UK. Um, okay, so now to summarize our conversation at this point, um, we are now talking about critical mass type, uh, the effect of critical mass, and uh, guys, can you help me? Yeah. And Sunday streets, or these Ciclavia events, these kind of mm. um, events that uh, attract people to car-free spaces, and and then how does that... Uh, how does that affect them on Monday morning when they think about the city? So, yeah, look, looking at fleshing out the if you build it, they will come model for bike promotion through uh, constructing infrastructural spaces for bicycling, fleshing that out by looking also at the social spaces um, for bicycling that we create as um, bike activists and users. Fantastic. So are, are, those, yeah. are, are those opposite sides? Is, is you know, because there's the two factions, right? The vehicular and the facilities. Uh, oh, well, that's, oh, that, <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, uh, I think that's a really interesting question, but I want to hear what Elizabeth has to say. And then the, the, the vehicular cycling issue is very complicated because um, it, it, this is, 
unfortunately, there's been extremes when really there should be a much bigger middle ground uh, since uh, basically all of us are vehicular cyclists unless we somehow magically are living in spaces where we never end up using shared roads. Um, but the ideology of vehicular cycling is, uh, is a way more kind of um, codified uh, end of the spectrum. So, Can you just define it real quick in case anybody is new to this? Um, I would define it as, um, well, it's, it's uh, John Forrester uh, came up with a set of guidelines for how to be a safe uh, vehicle operator uh, on a bicycle. So it's, uh, it's uh, my understanding is that it's similar to a, a driver paradigm. You drive your bicycle. And then um, the uh -huh. thinking is that you have the skills to manage your safety in shared spaces. Um, and so being put aside in a bike lane or, or off-street path is actually um, cutting into your kind of uh, legitimacy as a, as a shared road user. That's my understanding of it, Jason. You can probably... It, it, well, I mean, it, just one step further is that the idea is that you look at the you know, county or state vehicular code for how motorized vehicles are supposed to behave, like what are the signaling procedures and speed should you be maintaining and where you should be in the street. All of that is uh, codified and, you know, these legalistic long uh, documents. And basically, the vehicular cyclist is, read that, behave that way. So if you're approaching a uh, major interchange uh, that's, you know, six lanes of, of, of traffic and you're trying to make a left turn, you use your hand signals and make your way across each lane as if you were a vehicle, and I guess you're somehow supposed to maintain, you know, 20 miles per hour or whatnot, and you, you signal and you get into the left turn lane that the, the cars would get in and then make the left. Um, maybe 1% or 2% of the American population is, is going to do that, um, a bicycle may take a different kind of turn, maybe uh, use the crosswalk or, you know, something like that, which all of that is not in the vehicular code. So, um, you know, it can get really rigid with the, the way you're supposed to behave and uh, use signals. And uh, I'm not saying that bicyclists sh shouldn't use signals. Crossing multiple lanes of high-speed traffic in order to make a left turn you know, signal or not, is not what most people are going to be able to do. But right now it's kind of, kind of seen as an either-or thing, that you either build infrastructure or you, you advocate for cyclists to be, behave more like vehicles? Well, or I think as Adonia might be implying, and I'm certainly fine saying, we just start taking the space. Ride sociably. Uh, you know, like I said about San Francisco, for five years nothing got laid down. Uh, n you know, the majority of these people who took on cycling, they weren't thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to follow the vehicle code. No, they're rolling through stop signs. They're, uh, they're trying to just make do in, in the spaces that's the way it's configured and available to them. So, you know, kind of like the middle ground is, is to just ride as you feel safe and um, you know, don't don't 
don't be a, you know, don't be a aggressive uh, confrontational cyclist, but, you know, be safe. But maybe at the stop sign, there's nothing coming. You, uh, you go through at two miles per hour. So, Elizabeth, one of the things that you talked about, your, uh, the cycling charity doing is uh, creating 20-mile-per-hour speed zones. Um, and also you, you go into schools and you educate uh, children, right, about how to ride? That's right. So maybe those, those would be sort of related to what we're talking about. I think they are. And I think um, as much as one person can speak about some of the UK experience, um, I have the feeling that where we might be, maybe as a country, maybe as England, maybe as the bits that I know, is we've tried for quite a while to hit education really hard. And there are some amazing programs here. Probably the flagship is Bikeability. It's nationally funded. National government gives local government 40 pounds about for each child, 10, 11, 12-year-old child, they manage to give some cycle training to. And not just some cycle training, eight hours, and six of those hours are on the roads and in traffic. It's quite specifically vehicular. Here is how you signal in order to make a left turn. Here's where you position yourself in the road so that you can best be seen in traffic so that you can see well and navigate like any other person using the road to get around. It's a fantastic program. Um, it does so much to education. It does so much to giving kids the f they live to get around. It gives a lot to parents to feel that their children are safe. But still, the single biggest thing that I hear, and my entire role is to help people into cycling who are showing some glimmer that they'd like to cycle. The single biggest thing that I hear is, I am afraid of the traffic. I would never ride in that. I wouldn't send my children out in that. Uh -huh. Just won't do it. And I think enough of us have times to say, you know what? Let's start adding infrastructure to our mix. There are some roads that are perfect for taking the lane, everything here is mine, but at the point where I need to move over two lanes of traffic, nope, I need dedicated infrastructure. And my litmus test for is it good enough infrastructure is would you send a 10-year-old on it? And I think that's the discussion we're having about, am I part of traffic? Am I blocking traffic? Do I want to be separated from traffic? Is that cycling has to be not terrifying and ideally enjoyable if we're going to be, <laughs> have it be part of the mode of transport that people use. Does that chime with other people's experiences? Yeah, that's, uh, I think that ties yeah. in really well with what Jason was saying earlier about the, the need for um, sociable spaces for bicycling and how that is um, one of the equity issues that we have here in the States is um, that you are expected, if you're on a bike, to be 
as out of the way as possible and not be spending time with other people um, sharing road space. Mm. And I think some yeah, of the... Well, we were talking earlier about how, you know, at least in the U.S., there's this expectation of, of riding as far to the right of the road as possible, which I know in England it might be as far to the left, I think, right? But anyway, <laughs> you're supposed to be out of the way, out of the flow of the vehicular traffic. And then what, what that does is uh, parents who might want to uh, cycle with their children to and from school, uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a more comfortable, safer experience plus plus a social experience to ride side by side with your children and talk to them. Uh, but here, you know, unless you're on a fully separated path, um, the expectation is get out of the way, uh, even though most of the cars have one person in them and are six to eight feet across, wider than any, you know, two or three cyclists riding abreast. So there's a kind of a, a crazy equity issue going on there where a motorist will, expects everybody to get out of the way even if they're taking up 180 square feet as they're moving through space. I think there's also a huge equity issue about who owns the design of the place where you live, who gets mm -hmm. to have a say in how public space is used and what it's used for. And that notion that you have a right to drive a polluting vehicle through it, I think should be questioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's question it. <laughs> I think, too, I mean, one thing that's been on... Um, my mind again this kind of theme of how, how do you connect uh, grassroots bike energy with uh, planning policy and advocacy um, it's a it's you know so if we open up that that question of who gets to say how the space is used how do we create pathways for um, other kinds of bike users to be influencing new designs and how do we get their um, their experiences to the table, and then also taking into account that oftentimes um, the spaces we're talking about are places where you have people from all over the world who are sharing roads, and they're coming in with, you know, if somebody's an immigrant, chances are they probably already absorbed a, a travel culture, travel behavior norms uh, where they're from, and so then they're coming to this new environment where they've immigrated to, and um, you know, how are those styles in co conflict with or working with uh, the prevailing norms? And I, this has been on my mind big time because I moved recently from Portland, Oregon to Washington, D.C., and the street norms are so different, so different. The way that people drive, the way that people bike, the way that people um, cross streets as pedestrians. And it's, it's I think... I've I've heard uh I've heard um bike engineers call behavior a, a rabbit hole that just you know it's so hard to measure these things or or figure out what their impact is that uh it often just gets left aside when we're talking about planning and um policy but clearly it has an impact so how do we how do we include that in the conversation the fact that people think of how they're supposed to use roads differently and how do we think that infrastructure is going to communicate the same message to everybody. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing I, in, in response to uh, the the issue of the polluting vehicle through space, I mean, going back to the the question of the human, you know, is bicycling a human right? Um, the one of the things that also occurred to me was if, if again, we, we kind of back away from the, the actual physical mobility but think about the right to a city that is uh, not polluted, that is safe, um, then if we, if we start there, then we can start saying, okay, so if that's the framework of thinking about human rights, then what kind of city would uh, minimize the pollution impacts of the transportation system or the public safety uh, problems associated with the with the transportation system, and then I think we we go you know all the empirical evidence everything's there to say we should be uh, creating bicycle oriented cities that are uh, complement to a transit system and have that as the uh, underlying framework of organizing the city uh, instead of a autocentric city. So maybe you know if we start with the pollution issue and the, the right to clean air, you know, is that a human right? Right. That's mm. kind of where I go with it. So it sounds like in some ways Donnie is talking about what people most want or how they react to their, to their infrastructure, which might be a, what they most want out of it. And you're talking about a, a design around a right, a right mm-hmm. to, in this case, to be pollution-free. So it sounds like one of the, in our ideal world, we're trying to solve a problem that goes, we convince enough people that being pollution-free is what they want to do. Uh, that the way they enjoy a city or enjoy any of the space where they live includes being pollution-free. And I have to say that a lot of my experience, um, which is very much giving people the opportunity to cycle who don't currently do it, is that people like cycling. And I think that that is an argument that we could win, is here's an opportunity to get yourself in a, around in a way that you enjoy that also happens to mean there's less pollution and you can enjoy more things. My experience is that people really like cycling when they're given a chance to do it, and we could win that argument. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. In, mm-hmm. Well, I don't know what di- design everybody would choose. Right. Well, and it's, it's a... It's a I think the community engagement problem uh, with urban planning and design is um, it, it's not it's not easy to solve it. And clearly, there are you know expert designers because these are uh, uh, the public doesn't necessarily know just some you know some random street users not necessarily going to have the best idea for how street space should be um, designed or changed. But it's um, it's definitely a a conundrum to me, speaking as an anthropologist who studies bicycling, um, conundrum to me that there is such an emphasis on street design as a way to change behavior when 
street design often doesn't take behavior into account. And so it's, it's, I've often felt baffled by the fact that um, bike advocates seem to think it's easier to change the concrete of the road than to communicate with the drivers on the other side of the glass. And, and it is, it's, I, 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 of course, have had countless interactions with motorists who um, react to my attempts to communicate with them with profanity and um, very, <laughs> very clear statements that they don't, they don't see it as a, a, a conversation uh, of, of two road users negotiating space. Um, so maybe, maybe infrastructure is the, the best way to impact uh, aggressive motorist behavior, but it's just interesting how often we can have conversations about bicycling and the the aggressive motorists, not even the street design, you know, car-centric engineering, but the aggressive motorists just sort of get left out of the picture as a, a factor that won't change. Well, I, I the, the issue that uh, we have here with the uh, with aggressive motorists is that it, it, it's related to so many other things. I think the not to be an apologist for aggressive motorist behavior because it is a, a major social problem, but what, what you get is uh, a sense of entitlement that uh, it is the individual's right to cross vast distances very, very fast and to be able to park at the door and so any impediment, whether it be a cyclist or other traffic, um, you know, I, I often I try to tell uh, my uh, my friends who cycle and experience road rage not to take it too personally because actually they the 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 road rage motorists they do it to each other too. Um, you know, within a span of a few minutes, that same person who just honked at you and, and cursed at you is now stuck behind a, 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 a queue of cars banging on the horn. Um, so there's, there's this deeply ingrained sense of entitlement that the individual, and it relates, I think, also to this sense that the car is a kind of private property. And so this private property, which in America is, is, is on this elevated uh, privileged pillar of almost like a religion, um, so people think of their cars as this, it's, it's this uh, uh, transformation of people where they're moving through the city in their own private property and they should be able to go where they need to go as fast as they want because they've been inculcated to believe that that's the, the way things should be. And so, you know, there's this just extreme rage, hostility, impatience, um, and then also, you know, on the uh, at the same time, you've got the general imperative of capitalism with speed everything up, time is money, and commuters, uh, you, you know, low wage, lower wage uh, workers are disciplined for being late. Um, their commute is a huge part of their day that they're not being uh, paid for, and so you get these other sort of complicating factors where. The, the, the economic system of capitalism basically compels people to feel entitled to the speed uh, that that the, the car system is supposedly going to provide. So there's a lot of sort of complicated converging factors in um, this issue. And then you have us 
who are cyclists who are just, you know, we're the easy target. We're, we're the, the slow-moving, lumbering bicyclists uh, in the street uh, and that we should, we should be out of the way. Uh, I, I, I think, oh, go ahead. I, I guess what I was thinking about when you were talking about that is the, um, the frustration of drivers, the anger of drivers, the, that they take it out on there's the cyclist in the way, that sort of thing. Um, and a little bit like this sort of old-time critical mass idea of we are traffic, there's a problem mm-hmm. in there of not enough cyclists, of what's mm-hmm. normal in your day. If it's normal in your day to pass a hundred cyclists while you're in your car, then that's just then cycling is normal. They aren't in your way, they aren't a problem. It's just another form of transport using the road. If what's normal to you is to pass two, and therefore they're holding up everything and they're just they are, they are the anomaly that is wrong, uh, then cyclists are a problem and it's another place where you direct your frustration and anger if you're frustrated and angry and driving. Um, And one of the things I wonder in terms of the solution of that is not targeting can we get people less angry, but are there multiple ways, things that we can employ to get enough people cycling that it's normal, it feels normal to us as cyclists to be out, Drivers are more likely to see us, to expect to look around for us. Um, and I think as we talk about that, that be- between possibly design, possibly education, possibly just the introduction to more people to cycling, that I wonder if some of the beginnings of solving that is not solving the anger, but solving the there need to be enough cyclists for this to be normal. Do we know how we good examples of where that increase has happened, where there have been enough changed? I feel like Kevin Maine would be a good voice here because he always has, you know, success stories. Mm. I'm sure you all do. Don't you? Uh, certainly in the UK, some of the economic downturn may be related, may not, may be related to an increase in cycling. We think over the last five years in the town where I live, cycling numbers have doubled. But there is much more of a sense of seeing people out on the road. One of the things we know is that as numbers went up and also between the CTC and other charities and the local authority, the local council, we have taught from scratch probably a thousand people how to ride bikes and how to ride in traffic over the last three or four years. People are reporting being more comfortable. They're reporting um, some of the less negative impacts from drivers. Jason and Donia, are you guys still there? Mm-hmm. I'm here. Oh, it's so quiet. <laughs> I oh, I, I am going to need to take Elizabeth's example. Okay, yeah, Jason is has to go, right? 
I, yeah, I need to go at 10 o'clock, which is now about two minutes from now. Um, well, do you want to... We could keep going with uh, with Elizabeth and Adonia for a few minutes also, or we could wrap it up. What do you all think? Well, that certainly don't wrap it up just on my account. So we'll, we'll I, keep going. I keep going, going too, because okay. uh, oh, it's, uh, you know, present wrapping season. So I've got <laughs> stuff to attend to before holiday travel. Um, but I would love to do a, a follow-up chat and um, talk more about this, this question of how do, you, how do you develop a robust model that has this multi-pronged approach um, to promotion and some examples of that. Okay. That sounds well, fantastic. I would, uh, and I'm sorry that I missed some of those key beginning bits of, of what's come before. We can follow it up next month if you guys want. Um, well, thank you all three of you, and happy of holy ah. days. <laughs> Everybody ride safely. Yeah, good talking to you yeah. guys. Okay. Okay. Thanks Bye -bye. again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to Programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the Archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS feed link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group.